You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Britain's Conservatives and Labour remain neck and neck in the polls ahead of next month's general election, we ask what will it take for one of them to open up a lead? But we begin with the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean, where an estimated 800 people died on Sunday when a boat carrying migrants capsized and sunk off the coast of Libya. The boat was carrying people from a number of countries in Africa and the Middle East who were hoping to make the crossing to Europe. The tragedy is just the latest in a succession of such incidents since the European Union last year replaced a search and rescue mission called Mare Nostrum, run by the Italian Navy, with a cheaper maritime border patrol operation called Triton. To discuss the crisis in the Mediterranean, I'm joined from the Cara di Mineo refugee camp in Sicily by our correspondent Paddy Agnew from Brussels, by our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Paddy Agnew, can I start with you and could you perhaps tell us what we know now about what happened on Sunday? Well, the immediate media speculation seems to have been confirmed. The uh, uh, Catania public prosecutor who's opened an inquiry into the tragedy, he confirms that uh, something like 800 people had died, that the uh, fishing vessel they were in was on uh, three levels and that uh, 250 women and 50 children were locked into the bottom level. The vast majority of the male passengers were uh, locked into the second level and there were a few people, a few lucky people were up on deck uh, uh, and they were the only people who survived, obviously, when the boat capsized. Now, these people who were on the boat, they had come from various countries in Africa, but they had arrived uh, through Libya, which seems to be the starting off point for an awful lot of these vessels. Absolutely. Uh, Libya is key to the the immediate sort of uh, handling of this problem, because uh, given the breakdown of law and order there, the uh, boat trafficking people seem to be able to work uh, with complete freedom. And, you know, the, what's happened now, we've had a huge increase in the amount of uh, the numbers in the last week. Uh, you know, we've had something like, uh, we've had 22, 23,000 people making the crossings in the last week. And that is simply because we're heading to the, the spring, summer weather and the, the sea calmer. And uh, the uh, Italian authorities uh, point out that until you actually in some way control uh, the boat traffickers and their freedom of movement in Libya, you're not going to control uh, the boat trafficking. Now, Italy is taking uh, the brunt of of this and has indeed for, for many years. What are the Italians saying about what's been happening in the last few days? Well, the first uh, unofficial reaction is, is, is a new, uh, you know, you made reference to it in your introduction, that the Italians uh, feel that uh, they've had to carry the can here a bit in their own. They feel that you need uh, a European Union-style Mari Nostrum operation, uh, and they feel that the uh, EU border control agency Frontex, their Triton operation, is hopelessly inadequate. Uh, I mean, it's very simple. Triton basically has a, does not have a search and rescue mandate. It can only work uh, it's basically a border control operation and it 
can't operate any more than uh, 30 miles off sea. On top of that, it's got very limited resources, just one helicopter, two planes, uh, three motorboats and two larger ships. And it's simply not enough for the numbers that are coming, you know, are flooding in from Libya in particular. Uh, and But above all, the worst problem about that is the 30-kilometre coastal waters limitation because, as we know, as was the case of this uh, horrific uh, tragedy last weekend, most of these uh, sinkings, capsizings, uh, are very close to the Libyan coast. The last weekend's was uh, 70 kilometres off, and that often is the case. If you don't have uh, search and rescue uh, vehicles out in that area, ship, vessels, I should say, out in that area, you're not going to pick up these people. So, it, and that's proved by the fact that, you know, the this time last year we had about 20,000 people coming across. This year the figure is 23,000. This time last year we had 17 people dead. Uh, this year we have something like 1,600 people dead. So the n- huge uh, rise in number of dead is simply because there aren't ships out there in those areas to pick them up and pull them out of the water. Uh, Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, one of the reasons that the European Union decided to move away from this Mare Nostrum search and rescue operation into this new Triton operation, which is more limited, is because they felt that uh, the fact that there was this search and rescue operation going on was encouraging migrants to come across and to make the journey. Now, it's quite clear from what Paddy has just been telling us and from the numbers that we have that basically this hasn't really worked, has it, this business of, uh, of, of putting in a new operation to try to put people off? Yes, exactly. I mean, this is one of the kind of uncomfortable realities of this whole topic when we're looking at what the EU response to this. I mean, some member states uh, feel that, you know, putting any more resources into this and, and implementing widespread search and rescue operations will actually encourage more migrants to come. Um, but, yeah, as you say, the, the fact that the numbers are still increasing, still increasing, suggests that this is not the case and that really the EU is going to have to act in some way. Um, now, what we're going to be seeing in the next few weeks and months, there had already been a plan to come forward with a new Europe migration strategy that had been due to be published in, mid- in mid-May. Now, this has kind of accelerated the process and we're going to see EU leaders meeting here in Brussels on Thursday following um, Monday's foreign, joint meeting of foreign affairs and justice ministers. And that's the thing, the whole area of immigration, asylum seeking, all that, is quite a complex area in EU law. Um, it, it spans a number of council formations, so it's not just foreign ministers, but also justice and home affairs ministers in various countries. And then it's an area in which member states still have significant powers, not the EU. So the member states have a lot of power over setting their own asylum policy, their own immigration policy. And we're seeing, obviously, in a lot of countries that there's a huge um, anti-immigration vote out there. It's a huge issue in the, in the British election at the moment. In, in Finland at the weekend, uh, the true friends and anti-immigration party, they came second in in that election. Um, So, you know, the reality is that um, a lot of these countries are going to have to try and see, test the public temperature here and see, is there an appetite to try and help these these immigrants? Um, And maybe there is going to be change now that the really horrific nature of what's happened over the weekend may start really making the public think again about immigration and and really kind of give this political pressure on leaders to do something serious this time. So if we can uh, just be specific about what, in fact, is necessary in terms of coordinated mm. European action. On the one hand, we're talking about a, 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 a renewed search and rescue operation and some kind of mm. burden sharing where that's concerned. And then we're also obviously talking about uh, housing these people, accepting these mm. people uh, and processing them. Mm. Is, is that where the difficulty is going to lie, actually, in persuading uh, member states to accept more refugees? 
Yes, well, I think, um, yeah, the various different options are being looked at. And on Monday, this 10-point plan was was uh, approved by foreign ministers. And, yeah, we see a... a, a you know, a menu of options here. One is putting more resources into search and rescue, which everyone thinks is, is inevitable. Um, one is, is looking at a resettlement program for up to 5,000 uh, refugees. But at the same time, there's also in that 10-point plan um, a proposal to um, return, to offer immigrants return travel packages. You know, and we could see Theresa May, the British Home Secretary, yesterday in, in Luxembourg, she was keen to say, look, we need to see how we can work more effectively to return illegal immigrants. So, you know, we can see these tensions even in those, these proposals that on the one hand you know do you encourage and help these immigrants coming in or do you have do you bulk up and more on the fortress Europe side of things but I think what we may see over the next week is more an emphasis on working on the with the authorities in countries like Libya but not just Libya which is obviously very chaotic at the moment but also neighboring countries like Turkey and Syria to try and tackle the problem of smuggling the problem of illegal trafficking and to be fair to the EU it's very good on this in terms of um, Interpol and using sharing police resources when it comes to, you know, trying to find jihadists coming back into Europe. It's, a, it's very sophisticated cross-border networks that happen there. So maybe we could see something like that happening in terms of trying to tackle these people who are smuggling the immigrants in the first place. So that might involve setting up some kind of liaison officers in these in these countries and in the ports and in these areas where the immigrants actually start their journey. Paddy Smith, isn't that an enormous challenge, the idea of trying to reduce the sort of the so-called push factors that are sending people across the Mediterranean when you're actually dealing with failed states like uh, Libya. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, hugely problematic. No, nothing that the European Union can do in, in this respect is, is easy. Uh, it's politically extraordinarily uh, difficult. One of the things that people have been talking about is perhaps sending some kind of military force to, to Libya to assist in peacekeeping, uh, tackling the, the, the traffickers head on. Uh, that is that is uh, nightmarish for politicians who see the thought of an, another military entanglement on the ground uh, uh, as, as something that is going to become very quickly very unpopular because there's lots of jihadists in, in Libya who will who will no doubt start firing pot shots at them. The the other thing that they can do uh, is is start pumping uh, money, uh, economic aid into uh, these countries, and not just uh, Libya, but places like uh, Mali, Central African Republic, uh, Syria, Iraq, to help uh, economies that are in desperate straits, straits, and 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 to provide, if you like, a reason to stay for for the immigrants. But that is not that is a, a long term, very difficult, very slow uh, process. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the, the other alternative is simply sit on your hands and do nothing. And that will not be acceptable, I think, anymore. To what extent, Paddy, uh, are European and Western policy decisions to blame for the situation that we have now? For, for example, the, uh, uh, the military intervention in Libya. Can we blame that for what's happening? Well, you and, and Nigel Farage apparently want to, want to blame uh, the uh, uh, European assistance with the overthrow of, of Gaddafi for, for the whole uh, thing. The, the problem there, again, was that sitting on your hands doing nothing was quite likely to result in 
the uh, in, in in massacres in in really serious human rights uh, violations and there is no good option it appears uh, there is nothing that you can do in this part of the world without consequences that are not necessarily predictable Paddy Agnew from where you are uh, in Sicily if you look at the conditions of the people uh, who arrive in uh, southern Italy uh, and the way they are housed can you describe to us uh, just what those conditions are like well, the Caradi uh, Mineiro, I mean, it's, uh, it was a, once uh, a U.S. military base. So it's got uh, what on the outside looked like uh, pretty reasonable houses. It's got two football pitches uh, in between the houses. There are a lot of uh, uh, Africans uh, playing uh, playing football. But uh, if you talk to the guys, they tell you that the conditions inside are absolutely uh, are not great. That the food is uh, is bad. But above all, the thing that you know, uh, Paddy Smith's talking about, you know, people sitting on their hands. These guys here are all, uh, you know, they're playing football because there's nothing else to do. They, they, majority of them feel that they're, uh, seem to be here for more than a year, a year and six months before they get any sort of documentation which allows them uh, to move out. But mo- just about everybody in this place uh, wants to get out because uh, they see they feel they're just sitting around here uh, rotting away. There's nothing for them to. They're not allowed, for example, to leave the camp and go looking for work because uh, th- this uh, camp is right in the heart of rural cities. It's not near anything. There's a lot of uh, a huge amount of fruit uh, farming and uh, olive groves, vine groves around me, uh, and there's plenty of uh, agricultural uh, work on seasonal agricultural work. On but they're not allowed to leave this camp to do that uh, until they get some sort of documentation. So they they feel very frustrated, these guys, and they want to get out of here. Uh, Finally, Suzanne, we have this uh, summit in Brussels. It's an unusual uh, emergency summit uh, that's happening on Thursday. What, in brief, do you think we can expect in terms of decisions from that event? Yes, well, this is this emergency summit um, was called at the behest of, of Matteo Renzi, um, and we saw Donald Tusk, the head of the European Council, taking a kind of leadership role on this. It will probably very much focus on the preliminary discussions on Monday between the foreign affairs ministers working on this 10-point plan that was put forward. So we're probably going to see, on the one hand, a commitment. One would expect some kind of commitment for extra funding um, and extra support for Triton, that's Frontex, um, the border agency uh, operation at the moment. And also so some kind of move towards, I was saying there, the um, greater contact with authorities in countries, in troubled countries in North Africa and the Middle East. And whether this would be some of the EU delegations there working closely with authorities or more on the police and the Interpol side, that's probably going to be another aspect of, of what we can see on Thursday. But there's definitely going to be political pressure coming, not just from um, from the Italian and also, of course, the Greek Prime Minister, Alexis Tsipras, is going to be here as well. Greece takes a huge amount of, of immigration in through its islands, through its seas. So he's going to be there uh, standing alongside the other southern Mediterranean leaders. But also people like Francois Hollande um, and other leaders have also uh, come out strongly on this issue this week. So definitely I think we're going to see, have to see some kind of concrete measures coming out of the summit on Thursday night. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels and Paddy Agnew in Sicily. Thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. With less than three weeks to go before Britain's general election on May the 7th, the two big parties, the Conservatives and Labour, are still neck and neck in the polls, with neither party looking set to win a majority of seats in the House of Commons. 
In Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon's Scottish National Party looks set to sweep all before it, while the Liberal Democrats are braced for big losses all over the country. But the two big parties appear stuck at level pegging. So what will it take for one of them to pull ahead? And is a majority government now absolutely impossible for either to achieve? To discuss this, I'm joined from Ramsgate by our London editor, Mark Hennessy, and Patrick Smith is still with me here in studio. Mark, they're stuck. Why is that and why has nobody managed to uh, to get out of this level pegging? Well, partly it's a general dissatisfaction with political parties, the kind of thing that we're seeing uh, worldwide and certainly across Europe. Uh, part of it is the fact that the economic message from both parties is not being believed in quite the same way as it would have been previously. So there's a real credibility issue. And in the case of Labour, there was up to uh, a week or 10 days ago, although it is declining, but by how much we can't yet be sure, uh, a belief that Miliband uh, was not capable of becoming Prime Minister. Now, he has had a good campaign in the last week and that is generally accepted by everybody who's watching it. Yet, uh, the polls are still putting both of the two main parties at 33, 34, 35 percent, depending on which one we're talking about. They're all within the margin of error. And uh, even if uh, the situation in the past where Labour would always get a bounce from being just a point or two ahead of the Tories, that bounce is probably not going to exist in quite the same way because of demographic changes. Uh, those figures are not going to put either of them in uh, the Commons with a majority government. Now, if we look at the Conservative strategy, they seemed to think that uh, there were two things that were going to win them the election. One was the fact that the economy is doing well and that uh, they're uh, a safe pair of hands to keep this recovery going, and the other being that uh, you know people regarded uh, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, as being more prime ministerial than Ed Miliband. And as you said, Ed Miliband uh, hasn't had such a bad campaign. So, is that all that went wrong with the Conservative Party's campaign so far? Just they underestimated well, Miliband. Well, I, I think you know there are wider um, uh, uh, trends going on in politics that make it very difficult for main establishment parties to cut through the chat in quite the way that they would have been able to do in years past because the freedom of manoeuvre that parties enjoy is perhaps not quite uh, on the same scale. But, I mean, the fact that they are running out of strategy to an extent explains why in the last day or two they have taken such a strong line on Scotland because the messages that they've been putting out again and again and again, as you pointed out about Miliband's qualities of leadership and about the economy haven't got through. And Linton Crosby, who is their main election strategist, uh, who was brought in from Australia after advising John Howard for many years uh, and running very tough uh, uh, knuckle, bare knuckle campaigns in, in Australia. He has been telling Tories for the last year that the polls would start to turn in the Conservatives' favour from early spring onwards, and that by now, according to the Crosby narrative, the, the Tories should have been well ahead. That hasn't happened. So far, the Tories have managed to maintain a certain disciplined message, but the closer we get to uh, polling day, if there isn't uh, some break in the, in, in the polls in the, in the direction of the Conservatives, there will be an issue about discipline within the ranks. So the, the, now this uh, this attack line on Labour is to do, as you say, with the Scottish National Party, and essentially what the Conservatives are saying is that the only way that Labour will be able to govern is in alliance with the Scottish National Party, yeah. and that's going to be bad for Britain and particularly for England. Yes, 
And, and what we've seen in the last couple of days, the point I was making this morning, is that the, there is a certain degree of pantomime language uh, being displayed in politics now, where the threats being presented by uh, political challengers are being presented in, in exaggerated terms. Uh, Sturgeon is being presented as some sort of barbarian from the north who's going to come down and lay waste to, to uh, Whitehall. And clearly that would not happen in, in any situation where the SNP were uh, a significant player in power. The Tories are very keen on putting forward the image of an alliance between uh, Labour and the SNP. That will not happen. If, if there is going to be uh, a post-election deal of some kind, it will be a post-election deal where Labour are running a minority government and where they will be looking for support and individual votes from the SNP. And this is where the outcome in, in Scotland is critical because Labour has 41 or had 41 seats from Scotland in the last um, uh, parliament. Uh, it depends whether they come back with a dozen or two dozen or whether they come back with none uh, in terms of voting, in terms of the numbers that they need for their own majority, but also in terms of their UK-wide legitimacy. And that is why Miliband has ruled out the repeated demand by Sturgeon for a pre-election pact, because if he was to do that, it would be effectively the death warrant uh, for what is left of Scottish Labour. And Scottish Labour, as of this moment in time, is in a very sorry state. And if you gave uh, Labour an offer today, they could come back with 20 seats. They would literally snap your hand off. Uh, most uh, Labour MPs that we've been speaking to north of the border are, perhaps one exception, uh, believe that they have lost or they're very, very close to losing. And uh, Paddy Smith... Yeah, Mark, uh, one of the things that intrigues me is is that it's quite clear that the Tories believe that this accusation about the SNP and what the SNP would do in government is is a is an extremely powerful one. But is there any evidence that, that English voters in particular are actually frightened by this prospect? There is evidence coming from some constituencies, from battleground constituencies, where you are literally talking about fighting over three or four thousand people who uh, are, could waver between the Liberal, between Labour or the Conservatives. And uh, the Conservatives have gone into this campaign believing that 23 seats with all that they need is that effectively 11,500 votes, if they could return on what happened in 2010, would deliver them victory. Now, that obviously is a very simplistic way of looking at it, but it does show you the kind of micro-targeting that they are getting involved in. And they insist that, and I've seen one or two examples of it to back it up, that it is coming up unprompted on the doorstep in English constituencies. This idea of Scotland having an undue influence. Now, I mean, from an Irish context, it has echoes of 1911 and the Irish Parliamentary Party and Asquith and everything else. And in fact, if you look at Hansard and compare the language then and now coming from Shire, Tory and Peace, it is very, uh, very, very similar. And when you give that kind of language as the Tories are doing, it magnifies in Scotland and it provokes the same sort of reactions in Scotland that it would provoke in the average Irishman. And the Tories in Zealand are perfectly well aware that it is having that impact because there is almost a deliberate strategy at this moment in time within the Conservatives to ensure that the SNP come back in the strongest possible numbers, that Scottish Labour is wiped out and that either the Tories will come through the gap and be able to form a government of their own or if, if not, that you will have such a weak Labour minority government that it wouldn't very it wouldn't last long and then the British people will see the error of their ways and at the first available opportunity we'll have a second election and the Tories would come back triumphant. That is generally the broad strategy. The difficulty with all of that is that first of all it, it misunderstands the possibilities that exist within the Fixed Term Parliaments Act because 
somebody like uh, Bertie O'Hearn in Ireland or Angela Merkel in, in Germany at their height, with the, the power that are offered under the fixed-term parliament, I would frankly never be out of power because you can run a minority government in a situation like that. You can lose a vote uh, on the budget. You can lose a vote on your annual legislative list, as they call it here in the Queen's speech, and you can still stay in power. The only way you can be evicted from power is by losing a vote of no confidence. And a minority government will always be able to find people on the other side of the House who, for whatever reason, have, if, even if they disapprove of the existence of a minority government, will will disapprove, or disapprove more of the threats facing themselves in an election. So therefore, they, they, the, the, the ability of a minority government uh, to last is actually quite high. Now, the perception that the SNP would come down to lay waste in white, or clearly they would come down with a left-wing agenda, clearly they would want to be seen to be getting poor barrel from... Uh, uh, from Labour, but it's not some tea party like uh, Band of Marauders who are coming to close Washington down, because once May 7 is out of the way, the electoral timetable in Scotland immediately moves into the Holyrood election in 2016, and the SNP wants to ensure that they have a majority government in Holyrood to leave open the option for them to be able to push forward a second referendum should they, 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 they get a sense that they could win it and to ensure that they can drive home the final destruction of Scottish Labour so that it never comes back in any form to, to, to haunt them again. So Michael Forsyth, the former uh, Tory Scottish uh, Secretary, was making the point this morning that what uh, the Conservatives are up to and David Cameron is up to is very, very dangerous from the point of view of the Union and painting the regions as being somehow the enemy of the whole. At the end of the day, if you are an MP from Inverness or whether you're an, an MP from Hampshire, your vote should be worth the same. Paddy Smith, can I ask you, do you think that that threat that Michael Forsyth has been talking about, uh, about setting England against Scotland, that uh, that, that actually is a real threat to the, uh, to the uh, cohesion of the British state? Well, I think uh, the Tories are, are, are clearly... Uh, quite prepared to play, play England against Scotland, and that's what what they what they're doing, as Mark uh, has been saying. And and it's interesting that their their strategy of of if you like building up the SNP uh, is 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 really saying to their voters, we don't really mind what happens north of the border. Uh, where where uh, in fact a strong SNP is is to our to our advantage. It makes life difficult for Labour. Um, but but listen, we must hold firm against them. I, I think that the, the, the consequences of, of this strategy are, are likely to be to exacerbate the problems that a, a Tory-led government will have after an election, in, particularly in, in, in relation to the, uh, the, the whole idea of Brexit and, and a referendum on, on European Union. Brexit, you're referring to the idea of a British withdrawal yeah. from the European Union. And, and a referendum. And, and the Scottish demand, the SNP demand, uh, is, is quite interesting in this election. Instead of uh, pitching themselves as strong pro-Europeans, uh, they're calling for a, 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 a vote which would allow each part of the UK to vote separately on, on uh, a, a membership
leadership, uh, a proposition which, interestingly, uh, should actually have, have great traction in Northern Ireland as well as the South. But uh, so I, I think that they will, they will be, their hand will be strengthened by every attempt by the Tories to, if you like, build up the political differences between Scotland and, and England. Uh, finally, Mark, uh, the uh, the Labour Party this week is trying to focus on the National Health Service and trying to uh, to get away from all this talk about the Scottish nationalists. Uh, what chance do they have of actually moving the agenda onto more comfortable terrain for them? Well, th- there is some chance because it is the NHS is an issue that comes up again unprompted at the doorstep. They have been quite successful in creating or exploiting the image that, that the health service has gone has fallen back uh, over the last five years. Now, that is an arguable point. I mean, Britain has got older uh, over the last five years. There are now a million, one million more people over the age of 65 uh, in 2015 that there were in Britain in 2010. This is despite the wave of, of immigration that has come in from Eastern Europe with young workers and everything else. So there are demographic pressures that are exacerbating the position, even if there wasn't uh, the kind of economic pressures that are uh, abroad. So they have uh, uh, scored uh, reasonably well on that. Whether they can actually convince uh, the British people that the offering they're making in terms of extra funding uh, for the NHS is going to cut through is far from clear because one of the problems that all of the parties are, are facing this time around, and the main parties particularly, is this issue of credibility and this issue of whether people believe them. Going back, if I may, to the point that was made by Paddy earlier, there is an interesting issue of legitimacy uh, post May 7th, depending on how the numbers work out, and one does have to put that big qualifier on it, because you could have a situation where a minority uh, Conservative government is in power in London, where the SNP have run riot in uh, Scotland with taking all or nearly all or most of the Labour seats. Uh, and therefore having effectively in Scots eyes no right to rule over them or else you could have a situation where a minority Labour government could be in power uh, in London again with little or no representation in Scotland and perhaps even in a situation where it might even be the second uh, largest party if by a very narrow uh, majority in amongst English constituencies so you, you are going to have um, uh, a very potentially you have a very long road in terms of trying to form a government Labour have the most options, and at this moment of time, despite all of the things that people have been saying about Miller for a very long period of time, uh, he still has the best chance of becoming Prime Minister unless something turns in this campaign. And, you know, we've been waiting for three weeks for there to be a big seismic movement, and it hasn't happened. Mark Hennessy and Patrick Smith, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.